0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So, last few weeks, if you've been with Mercy's Door, you know that my tone has been on the heavy side. I said it's been tough because as we move through the Passion account, it's just been whether it's Annas or Caiaphas or the religious mob or Pilate, just this story just laced with wickedness. And holding out to you guys some sober warnings about how this, these different types of wickedness can take root in us and we can be blind to it just as they were blind to it. It's been hard. and This passage today, fortunately, really centers on Jesus. We get to look at him. But sadly, he's suffering in this passage today. And my prayer as I was preparing for this morning was that the church would be uh, ministered to, that, that the Lord would draw near to you this morning as you behold the suffering Messiah that he would do a work this morning in the church to reorient the way that we think about suffering, the way that we think about wrath and judgment, and that we would be renewed in a full understanding of what actually took place in Jesus Christ's life, suffering, and death, ultimately his resurrection. There's a specific doctrine that I want to get after this morning And I want to hold out the problem to you on the front end, and then we're going to work our way through uh, how this gospel account testifies to its error. See, a lot of times even in Christian circles, we reduce what happened at the cross, we reduce what happened in the suffering and death of Jesus Christ to something like a soldier jumping on a grenade. And this is a Beautiful picture of sacrifice, a soldier jumping on a grenade, but it's a super incomplete way to see the atoning work of Jesus. I want to hold it out to you why. A lot of times when we think about the cross of Christ, what we do is we say, the cross of Christ liberated us from the power of sin and will liberate us from the presence of sin, but it had nothing to do with liberating us from the penalty of sin. Instead, Jesus came on a rescue mission to save us from sin itself. Sin was the bad guy that Jesus was coming after, that he was trying to rescue us from. Like it's this other entity, and it's a grenade that was rolled into the room, and it threatened us, it it threatened to harm us, and Jesus just loved us so much that he threw himself on the grenade in order to spare us from the consequences of sin from maybe the presence of sin, from the power of sin. He just wanted to save us from sin. And he did do those two things. We're going to talk about those things a little bit this morning. But there's a missing piece if that's all that Jesus was doing on the cross. See, he wasn't just saving us from the presence of sin or from the power of sin. Jesus came to save us from the penalty for sin. We didn't think of sin as an enemy when he came. We weren't asking to be saved from sin. We enjoyed it. What stood against us was the just wrath of God against sin. And incoming punishment and penalty for sin. And there is a wrathless cross that is being preached in pulpits all across America today where something happened at Calvary, and it was beautiful, but it had nothing to do with appeasing wrath. It's not that God was angry. It was that God cared so much about the damages of sin that he had to find a way to resolve it. But the thing he wasn't resolving had not have anything to do with the punishment for sin. And if that's the case, then it's really tough to make sense of how bloody this account is. We're going to behold Jesus in a way that's really uncomfortable today, and it's only good news if it's doing something. And I I want to hold out to you on the front end this morning that it was far more than a guy jumping on a grenade. Let's see how. So Pilate took, took Jesus, and he flogged him, verse 19. If you were with us last week, we did a deep dive on Pilate last week, and the last words that were really out of his mouth were that he finds no guilt in the man. And so our passage opens this morning with this Pilate who finds no guilt in Jesus taking and flogging him. So what I need you to see for first order this, this morning is, is Jesus tied to a post, chained to a post on his knees and Roman officers up on a stone platform in order to get a good angle. And they are whipping and flogging and scourging him with a whip with sharp objects on the ends in order to rip away and tear away the flesh. They would do this brutally and mercilessly. One third of the lashes being on the front end and two thirds of the lashes being on the, on the back as they just tore the flesh from the bone and left him mangled, bloodied. Pilate says, "I find no guilt in him." And then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, verse two, and they put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. And so we see now that there's this, there's this crown that Jesus is wearing on his head, and the only crown he ever wore. In this life was one of suffering, one of pain. And then upon these lashings and exposed bone and muscle and tendon and blood, they throw a purple robe, color of majesty. They begin to mock him. They come up to him saying, verse 3, Hail, King of the Jews! And they strike him with their hands. And so we have this king of the Jews, this king of heaven descended into human flesh, having that flesh ripped from him, receiving the blows of the people he came to save, using the true title, accurate title, king of the Jews in jeer and mockery against him. You've got to see it. Jesus, our God, became punchable. So flesh was He, so man was He, that He was able to be killed. See, when we talk about Jesus dying for us, sometimes we skip right over this magnificent truth that in order to die for us, He had to become diable. He took on flesh in order to lay it down. We're seeing our God in a way that is it ought to be very uncomfortable for us. His humanity is on grand display here. I've preached it several times at Mercy's Door, but I, I want you guys to know that there was a, a major transformation in my faith the moment that it really occurred to me that Jesus was fully man. I'd always said of, of, of Jesus that it, I kind of imagined him like he was a, a human robotron, humanoid, indwelled by a little alien pulling the controls. That he looked like us in order to be relatable to us, but he wasn't really us. And so he let us break him open, and we saw that he bleeds blood, and we saw that his flesh tears away like us. His humanity was on display, and Jesus becoming fully man is incredibly important because the doctrine that I want to teach this morning is one some of you know and some of you may deny, and it's the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. If that's a new $5 word for you, you can write it down. Penal substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy expression to say that Jesus died an atoning death that accounted for the punishment, the penalty that was due for us. But he couldn't do it unless he was one of us. So first we need to see his humanity before we can delight and what it accomplished. He became flesh and bone. He became punchable. He became killable. And then he turned himself over to have these things done to him. So we have Pilate this morning taking this guy who he finds no fault in, blogging him, beating him, pressing a crown of thorns into his head, mocking him, adorning him, hitting him, and bringing him back before the people. Hail, King of the Jews. This is to fulfill Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. Prophecies 700 years before it happened. That brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed, verse 7, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people... They made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Jesus came to do something. He didn't die a pointless death and he didn't jump on a grenade. He, he plotted the steps in order to ensure that he would take on flesh and lay it down again in a very specific way for a very specific reason in order to fulfill what was written that we had a great need and that great need could only be met by a perfect atoning sacrifice. You see, this is the testimony of all of Scripture. From the beginning to the end, what we see is the need for someone to stand in. It's like I preached last week, we need help. Not just from the effects of sin, not just from the power of sin, but from the penalty of sin. Our just God has seen our sin. He has looked upon our rebellion and his wrath has been kindled. The wages of sin are death. Don't forget, the curses in the garden were applied to all mankind. We're talking about not just cursing the ground, but we're talking about all of man being thrown into spiritual death. This is where we pull these these doctrines that we preach week after week at mercy's door, that we were all dead in the trespasses in which we once walked, but have been made alive again with Christ. Guys, our spiritual death was meant to be eternal, eternal separation from God. This was the penalty. This was the wrath of God against sinful man. And yet we see all throughout the Old Testament these stories, don't we? Like with Abraham and Isaac where he provides a ram. Or in the sacrificial system in in the ancient days, how he would allow for the priesthood to stand in and to make atoning sacrifices for the people. And yet what would happen after the priest would make a sacrifice for the people? The day would come yet again where they needed to make another and another and another and another The Passover story where the destroyer, the wrath, the the judgment of God passing through for a specific people in a specific region on a specific day, they needed a substitute to protect them from the wrath of God, so that when they painted the the post and lentil of their door with the blood of a spotless lamb, they were spared from the judgment of God. All of these, these examples in the Old Testament are pointing us to a truth. We need help. We need atonement. We need one to stand in for us because we can't make payment for our sin. If we were to make payment for our sin, we would, like I said last week, be always paying and never paid. But all the lesser sacrifices were temporary at best to point us to our need For the perfect in Christ, Jesus came into human flesh to be that perfect sacrifice for us. He became our atoning lamb. He became our sacrifice for sin. He stood in for us and bore the wrath of God upon himself. And you'll ask me, why, how was one man bearing the wrath of God, one man dying on a Roman cross, one man receiving the rejection of the Father, one man descending into death, sufficient to atone for the sins of all mankind. And I'll answer you twofold. One, because the Father said it is sufficient, and that's good enough. His wrath was satisfied, as he looked on him. But he gives us more than that. What we can know about Christ is that it was his perfection as an atoning sacrifice. You see, Jesus Christ came and he lived a sinless life. Do we really get that? That he lived a sinless life? A sinless life. Life. I've said it like this before. Just take the the greatest command, just one command, and apply it to yourself to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's just take the first half of that, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not one of us has ever done that for one second of our life, but Jesus Christ did that every moment of his life, as as well as all of the other things that honored the Father. He perfectly walked in the will of God, not just by what he abstained from, but by what he did. Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect righteousness before God. He was perfectly pleasing before the Father. Jesus Christ was that good, is that good. We have to see him as fully human first before we can really marvel at how good he is. He stood in as one of us, and then acted like God. Fully human, fully God. He brought the two together and lived the life that we were meant to live such that when he offered it up willfully, it was a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, so good that it satisfied and pleased the wrath of holy God against all mankind. Goodness. He lived for you, he suffered for you, he died for you, and he rose for you. These are the mechanics of the gospel, but do we remove the me- do we take the mechanics and remove them from the person? Like, do we really see him and understand what it means when we say, "He lived for you? When we read this, do we understand he suffered for you? Seeing that perfect sacrificial lamb bloodied and scourged, beaten and mocked, crucified, tried and denied. Not only is it a mirror like the law in the Old Testament to show us just how badly we needed an atonement. but it also shows us just how good our God is that he would go to these lengths. The horror of the cross shows us the wickedness of sin and the goodness of God simultaneously. Guys, you're worse than you think. The problem is worse than we think. The cross shouts that. But he's better than we think. The cross shouts that. It's both. He suffers for you. And then Pilate brings him out before the crowd, the Jews, his people, the people of Jesus. Pilate goes out again in verse 4 and he says to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Like, what? So he scourges him, Bloodies him, beats him, mounts a crown of thorns, clothes him in a robe, mocks him, brings him in front of the crowd, and says, See, I'm bringing him out to you in order that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid, and he went back into his headquarters to talk to Jesus. And I want to continue to hold out to you. I don't want to preach another Pilate sermon, truthfully, but I want to hold out to you guys that Pilate is not like what, you're seeing, what you see in cinema. He's not conflicted in the way that our instincts because of media have told us to see him conflicted. Well, we, know, we just know that he is, he's brutal Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish philosopher in AD 50, he wrote about Pilate. Pilate was known for his briberies, insults, robberies, outrages, and wanton injuries, executions without trial, constantly repeated, ceaseless, and supremely grievous cruelty. I told you guys last week about that story of the, the, where he robbed the, the, the uh, sacred treasury in order to pay for aqueducts. Well, the the Jewish historian Josephus writes that what he did in response to that when there was a crowd that went and opposed what he had done, he sent the Roman guards in civilian clothes out among the protesters, and then at his call, they dropped their robes, lifted their clubs, and beat them to death. We know enough about Pilate to know that this is not contrition that he's dealing with, and then the story itself bears to that. How is he simultaneously feeling moral dilemma while also mocking the guy? Behold, king of the Jews, on his cross he puts a sign: "King of the Jews." He seemed to enjoy this, flaunting this in front of the Jewish people. Look at your king." Pilate was the worst. But he doesn't want to be held responsible for his death. And if you still don't buy what I'm selling, he doesn't care if he gets crucified. He just doesn't want to be the one to do it. Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said, take him yourselves and crucify him. For I find no guilt in him. Like the height of his goodwill was to turn him over to someone else to crucify him. Why? Well, we know from the other gospel accounts that his wife had had a dream that disturbed her and she said, this is a holy man. Take no part in this. But I gave you kind of the history of why that would have been loud in Pilate's ears. He kind of keeps messing with holy people and he keeps having to pay the penalty in Rome for it, for not keeping the peace. But here, when they say, we have a law that says he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God, said Pilate heard this, and he was even more afraid, and he enters his headquarters again and says to Jesus, what, where are you from? Now, this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, but I believe what he's asking is, if I go through with this to appease this crowd, is there another crowd that's going to come behind them looking for this guy, holding me to task for what I did here? Where are you from? Who is calling you king? These people don't think it. They want you dead. Who doesn't want you dead? And are they coming after these guys? He's just trying to save his own hide. It's not going to work. He's going to end up removed from his office within a couple of years after this. Again, because he unnecessarily and violently killed some Samaritans. So he brings him into the headquarters, and he just wants to know, is it safe to kill you? Where are you from? Jesus gives him no answer, and so Pilate says to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from Above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Just a couple of words on this. It's true of Pilate, it's true of every authority. No one has any authority that hasn't been leased to them by the Father. God is having his way, even through the wicked rulers of the earth. It's the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end that the king's heart is like a stream in the hand of the Lord and he bends it where he will. Okay, our God is reigning supreme over all the nations of the earth, all the kings of the earth, all the authorities that he's established and he's even using what they intend for evil to carry out his good purposes in creation. This is really good news such that God in human flesh, Jesus Christ being questioned before Pilate, Pilate says to his face, don't you know, My authority here, and Jesus is like, you don't have any authority. Only that which God has given you. My father, and I trust him. Do what you're gonna do. The greater sin is with those who delivered me over to you. And that's just objectively true. Because the ones that delivered him over were his people. He said, We have a law. We have a law. We have a law. Jesus is like, I gave you that law. And it testified about me. And it pointed you to your need for me. And now I'm standing before you, and you're using my law to justify killing your Savior. They definitely had the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, verse 12, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, he made his judgment, and he said to the Jews again, behold, your king, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And this was literally Pilate's job, was to get them to say those words. His whole job was to bring the people of his region under subjection to the Roman Empire. This is why he was constantly at odds with them. These are the words he's looking for. These are the words that led him to go through with it. The Jews knew exactly how to play him You guys remember the story from last week when he tried to erect the Roman standards in Jerusalem, when he tried to erect the shields bearing Emperor Tiberius' name in the house of Herod, there was a major outcry. Here, these Jews are saying to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. You're no friend of Caesar if you don't kill this guy. Why the change in tone? It's all just political posturing. Back and forth, political posturing. Nobody cares about the king of heaven on trial here. Everyone just trying to get their way. And so when he heard this, we have no king but Caesar, he delivered him over to be crucified. We'll get to the crucifixion over the next two weeks. So in this account, what we see so far is a Jesus who turns himself over to wicked authorities over which his father is the higher authority. He lays down his life, which is perfectly lived, perfectly righteous, to be beaten, mocked, scorned, scourged, killed. to find a way for us to see this as more than jumping on a grenade. When you see Jesus standing in that place and enduring that suffering and willfully walking through that persecution that calamity that judgment that wickedness that harm, when you see him willfully entering into that he's not just identifying with suffering although he is, it's going to be a major closing point. He's demonstrating for you what he's come to accomplish. He's standing in for you for, to take your penalty. See, sometimes when I talk to Mike, I remember when I was first talking to Gus about salvation. He's my youngest. He's uh, seven now. He's probably four at the time we were talking to him. I said, why did Jesus come to die? Right, just early questions, theological questions. Some of my best theological conversations are with him. And he said, well, he died on a cross so that I won't have to die on a cross. No, he didn't die on a cross so that you don't have to die on a cross. And then I asked him, did Peter die on a cross? Yes. Did Jesus die for Peter? Yes. So he didn't die to save you from a cross. What did he die to save you from? From my sin? Yes. More specifically, what did he die to save you from? From the penalty for my sin. From the penalty for my sin. The cross accomplished two things, and Christ's return accomplishes a third. Three things. you should be in your notes if you're, if you're a note taker. From the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin. The cross accomplished our liberation from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. The return of Christ, not as the suffering Messiah, but as the conquering Messiah, will liberate us from the presence of sin. But the power and the penalty of sin are already dealt with. What do I mean by that? I mean that now that Christ stood in for you and bore the penalty for your sin, that God, now God the Father, now already justified because the blood spilled for you, the atoning lamb, has already been slain, looks at you and declares you righteous. And because you've been declared righteous, you are worthy to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the very presence of God dwells in you, and you've been made able to receive that type of righteousness because of the blood that was spilled for you. So you were washed clean, clean slate, not then to go do good works in order to keep the slate clean, but in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit, in order that he would keep you clean eternally by his Spirit. What does this mean? You don't have to sin anymore. I know what I just said, but you don't. You used to have to. You were a slave to the prince of the power of the air. You were children of the prince of the power of the air. By nature, children of wrath. Even your good deeds were as filthy rags for the wrong motives because everything is meant to be done unto the worship and glory of God. and You did not one thing to those ends. But with the Holy Spirit in you, you have been freed from the bondage of sin and death. It means that now that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you because Christ stood in for you, washed you clean, and sent you the Spirit. You don't have to sin. That's good news. But then you're gonna. And when you do, the pouring of the blood covers you. You see, there's two pourings that happen in the first coming, the pouring of the blood and the pouring of the Holy Spirit. One is in order that you might not sin the other is that when you do, that you would be washed clean of it, that you would be forgiven. It's this, it's this perfect duo of security, and you're meant to walk in it. And then it's to cause us to cry out, but when will we be freed from the presence of sin, from the very temptation to sin? And that's when Christ returns. At the second coming, as the conquering Messiah, with the double-edged sword, with the white horse with the robe dripped in blood. These, these images, these of prophetic literature at his return where he will separate the wicked from the righteous and he will purge the earth of wickedness and he will reign eternally in the new earth. This is promise. How do we know he's going to come back? Because he said he'd come the first time and he did. So he's trustworthy So how should this change the way that we think about suffering? Because a lot of us think if it's really true that the cross accomplished liberation from sin, liberation from death, then there shouldn't be this much suffering, and it's errant thinking. And so this is why it's part two of last week's sermon. I need you guys to hear this. You are liberated from the presence of sin at the return. It is the penalty and the power that you've been liberated from now. So do not be surprised when suffering comes your way. Do not think that something odd is happening to you. Instead, count it as joy, brothers, when you encounter sufferings of various kinds. Let me give you a different way of thinking about suffering. Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, hear those words, for the sake of Christ, suffer for his sake. Second Corinthians 12.10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. Romans 5.3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Suffering that produces hope what has changed here, guys? Romans 8:18. 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. Glory, guys. It's 2 Corinthians 4:17. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Christ standing in for us in suffering on behalf of mankind has fundamentally changed the nature of suffering such that from here to there, all of your suffering for the sake of Christ produces good things. It produces glory. It produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And we're not just talking about persecution on account of being a Christian. I'm not just talking about being lit on fire for your profession of faith. I'm talking about 2 Corinthians 12.10, content in weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So whether you're shipwrecked or snakebitten, stoned, or whatever comes your way, the function of suffering is now for you. Why? Because Christ entered into it and used it to bring about good purposes such that now that you're joined to Him, and by his spirit, when you are brought into suffering, it only produces good things, only goodness. And you're like, no, Adam, you've not seen my suffering. And I'm not saying that you will see that it was good until you stand before him and suddenly it is being compared to the glory that has been revealed. Paul didn't say I'm not suffering. In fact, he testifies that at a certain point in his ministry, he despaired for life itself. He wanted to die. But he persevered, he said, for our sake, that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He just wanted to behold the glory that was going to show that all of the suffering was for good. You won't always see it. You probably won't often see it but one day you will be behold with your eyes that all of it was serving a great good. And then you will be saved from the presence of sin eternally. You know, Paul talked about suffering. I've preached this many times, but it never gets old for me. He talked about suffering. He said that when he suffers, that He got to fulfill what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's a weird expression to cause some controversy, as if there was anything lacking in Christ's sufferings, right? But there's this portrait, and I preach it often because it's important for you to understand the privilege of suffering. Because the Lord already knows the day when he will blow the trumpet sound and declare enough and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because that day is set. And because on that day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more suffering. That means that every day we get closer to that day. And that means that every drop of suffering that the church endures, they are drinking up a finite amount of suffering that will ever exist. The amount is known. The allotment of suffering that will ever take place on the face of the earth is known to God. And every drop of suffering that you drink, church, is, t- is taking it from an account that has a finite amount of suffering before Christ will say, enough. That's how Paul saw suffering. And that's how he was able to count it joy. But fear of suffering has led many to flee, to flee the faith, to question the goodness of God. And I tell you, one day when we stand before the throne of God with unveiled face and we behold him, here we see, Behold, King of the Jews, behold the man. We will behold him, church, not on a cross. But on his throne, we will see him coming in the clouds. We will ascend with him. And just like Paul said, the sufferings of this present day will be unworthy to be compared with the glory that is revealed. He has fundamentally changed the nature and function of suffering. Do you believe it? I don't always believe it. So many of us have oriented our entire lives around avoiding suffering. We're like Barabbas, demanding prosperity now. And functionally, the unbelief there, if we're really honest, is that this life is as good as it gets. We doubt the goodness of eternity. We doubt the goodness of the new earth. We doubt the sufficiency of Christ to redeem suffering for his good purposes. And it's a slavery, guys. We will pad our lives with comfort and security, and we will grit and bear it, and we will look down. Far be it from me to call somebody to pursue suffering. You don't have to look for it. You know that. It comes for all of us. But how you interact with it should be way different than how the unbelieving world interacts with suffering. The greatest testimonies of the church all throughout church history for the last 2,000 years have been in the face of suffering, persecution, calamity, when God seemed to take everything from a man or a woman and they still profess the goodness of God. That's world-changing. The world needs that message. And so here's my invitation for you in closing. In Acts twenty six twenty two, Paul is appealing to King Agrippa. He says this, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. Amen? So I stand here testifying to both the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and the Gentiles. Christ suffered on your behalf. You have to look at it. It can't just be a Bible story. You have to see him flogged. You have to see him bleed. You have to see him cry out. Jesus Christ on the cross called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did not hear an answer. He became as one deaf in that moment in order to bring healing to the deaf, to open the ears of the church. And when he looked out and saw nobody At his side, he became as though one blind in order to give sight to the blind. When before his accusers he was silent, like a sheep led before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He became as though one mute in order to put words into the mouth of the elect. Guys, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ stood in for you in suffering in order that your suffering would now be suffering with purpose. Your comfort here is that your suffering is never evidence of the judgment of God, not anymore. There's a future sermon for you guys about the discipline of the Father. That's not today. Today, all I need you to hear is that if you belong to Him, your suffering is never evidence of His wrath. Your suffering is never evidence of His judgment or condemnation. He has reoriented suffering such that you can embrace it and have it serve you suffering is your slave suffering produces righteousness in you now suffering produces Christ likeness in you now suffering opens your eyes opens your ears opens your mouth suffering compels you forward with your eyes fixed on that kingdom calling come lord jesus and remove the presence of sin listen you would not hunger for that for a second in the absence of suffering it is the remaining peace of the gospel, that he would return and wipe the earth clean of it. But until then, it is your honor to walk in the likeness of Christ in his suffering in order that the gospel would advance on the nations. I know that I have been a one-tune preacher for weeks now on this. But the only reason that the conquering Messiah has not come, the only reason why the trumpet hasn't sounded is he has not Gathered the full number. He wants more. Our good God wants to save more. And some of us will not participate in that work because we we will not endure suffering. We have an intolerance for suffering. But if Christ could do it and then fill us with his spirit, then he can help us to suffer like him. And when we suffer poorly, we are covered in his blood. Guys, whether you fail or whether you succeed, you are covered because of Christ. Let it compel you forward, not into paralysis. I want to pray over you here. Hear my words and let them, let them be a blessing to you as I pray.